0: Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are not, are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord, Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything is exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome again. Can you guys hear me a little bit? We're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but we are going to roll through it. So thank you so much for, for being here. Um, in 2009, on Thursday, January 15th, it was an ordinary cold day in New York City, and Flight 1549 took off at LaGuardia Airport at 326 in the afternoon. Now, you may know the story. The flight began as normal, but two minutes into the flight, the airplane sort of gobbled up a huge flock of geese. Uh, now, airports have all these strategies. They have people that devote their whole lives to keeping birds from flying over airfields. But a flock of Canada geese got over the, the airfield, and these are big birds, and they were a lot of them. And so the the airplane... Uh, sucked him up and both engines immediately were gone. Now, Captain Sullenberger and his co pilot had about three minutes where they knew that they could stay in the air before hitting the ground. Now, you may know this as, as a miracle story even before it became a movie with Tom Hanks. I mean, at this point, if there's an airplane or like a boat or a bus that Tom Hanks is the driver of, just don't even get on it. You know what I mean? Like, if I see him. He's going to make it okay, but I'm not getting on that thing because it's, you know, it's about to go down. But they had a few options in the three minutes that they had before hitting the ground. The first was to return to LaGuardia or one of the other airports, but quickly they figured out that they weren't going to be able to make it. At this time, they were flying over the Bronx, which is one of the most densely populated neighborhoods in the entire world. The second option was to land on the New Jersey Turnpike, which was not a great option for obvious reasons. And then the third, and really the only option, was to turn and try to land the aircraft on the Hudson River. Now, river landings are extremely difficult for several reasons. Number one, if the nose of the airplane or one of the wings touches the water first, immediately the entire aircraft will break into pieces, killing everyone on board. And so Captain Sullenberger and his, his co-pilot only had moments to go through a process that they had trained to do. And so they had to shut down the engines, disconnect autopilot, shut down flight management. They had to activate the seal on the vents and valves to make the airplane more waterproof. And then they had to set the speed consistently and glide over the water as long as possible and, and of course, not hit a, a bridge or a boat. Uh, And then importantly, they had to land going in the direction of the current of the river. Now, remarkably, they managed to do all of this and save the lives of every single person on board. And while we might want to call that a a miracle, and in a way that's true, anyone in the flight business would call it something else. They would call it the power of good habits. You know, the importance of following the right procedures, of, of good training, of having been through it enough in advance that they could act on these habits. You know, it's interesting, Captain Solenberger was not only a seasoned pilot, he was an expert and a trainer in water landings for commercial aircrafts. He was probably more equipped than anybody else in the entire world for this one catastrophe. Now, pilots aren't born with the innate knowledge of flying a plane. Of course, it takes thousands of hours of training, tens of thousands of hours of experience. They, they do all these simulations of things that can go wrong so that they can better serve others that are entrusted to their care. Now, it's the same with any skill or activity or, or habit. We have to learn it. We have to cultivate it. We have to, to focus on it and shut out other things in order that our attention can be fully set on, on this one thing. And the way it works with any habit or skill is that we first have to have a vision of what we want to be able to do. Second, we need the motivation to get us there. And then third, most importantly, we need habits that will sustain a life that fits this vision. Now, this is true of any skill, any ability. And most of our lives are not shaped by these great moments, but rather by the moment-by-moment habits that we've cultivated. The, the minutes, the hours, the days that, that we do roughly the same things and over and over and over. We are what we continually do. Or as the writer Annie Dillard has put it, how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives. Now we're looking at Ephesians 5 this morning, the text that we just read. And we're looking at this important word from the Apostle Paul, which is to walk in the way of love. To, to cultivate the habits and the character of Jesus in order to become a light into the world. And so there's three things that this passage shows us. First, there's a command, which is verses one and two. Second are the habits, verses three through seven. And then third are the invitation, verses eight through 14. So we'll start with the command and it's a command to love. Verse one, follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now in Ephesians 4, if you've been with us for some time, you know that Paul is getting increasingly practical. The first uh, three chapters of Ephesians are all about theology. It's about who we are in Christ, what God has done for us in Christ And this is so important that it it comes before the the commandments and the way of life in chapter four and then now here in chapter five, because Paul doesn't start and and the New Testament doesn't start and Christianity doesn't start with what we must do, but rather what God has done for us in Christ. And so if if you're new here, if, if you've just been here for the last week or two, all you have to do is go back and listen to like 12 sermons online. You'll be totally caught up. I'm kidding, of course. But rather, what you must realize is that when the Bible gives us commands, it does so only after calling us children of God, after calling us dearly beloved. And so God comes to us. He makes a way for us to know him through Christ, and then he changes our hearts from the inside out, and then he calls us to a certain way of life. And that's always the order that the Bible takes. Pastor Tim Keller has said Christianity isn't a vitamin supplement adding a little health to your life. It's a heart transplant, and everything depends on it. Now, it's fitting, too, that the major command of Ephesians is one word. It's love. Love one another. Walk in the way of love. And even still, Paul doesn't just tell us to love, but he tells us why to love and how to love. So first, why Jesus' sacrifice? The verse says, because Christ has loved us and given himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. This is the foundation for our love. It's the very love expressed in the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul is coming back to Hebrew imagery again, as he often does in Ephesians. And he's reminding these early readers and of, and of us of, of how Israel had these strict instructions for getting God's forgiveness. They were continually falling into sin and grumbling and moving away from God. And so God made a way to restore them to himself, their sin, the penalty for their sin was death. And yet he allowed for an animal sacrifice to take place to wipe away this penalty. And so you see all throughout the Old Testament, all of these rules and regulations and Levitical laws on how to do these animal sacrifices in order to receive the forgiveness of God. What Christ is saying is, or what Paul is saying is that Christ is now your sacrificial offering. He is your your once for all sacrificial lamb who has been slain for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Anyone who believes in him, their sins are transferred onto the sacrificial lamb. And not only that, but the righteousness of Christ is transferred onto us. This is the ultimate demonstration of love. It's, it's the why that we are to love one another because we have been first loved according to the gospel, according to this good news of Christianity. This is the ultimate display of love. Christ has become the fragrant offering. So you can think there of like in the Old Testament imagery, the barbecue, you know, burnt ends, that's a fragrant offering to God. And that's what Christ's sacrifice is for us an offering that is pleasing to the Father. And so that's the why of love and the the how of love, how we are to walk in love is to walk in the way of Jesus. Paul writes, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love. Because of the love that's been poured into our hearts, now go and walk in that same love. And one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, I've probably shared this quote before. I know I have. It's a paragraph that uh, I would almost say has changed my life. And I can remember when I read it, how many things connected for me. But he says, We can become like Christ in character and power and thus realize our highest ideals of well-being and well-doing. We can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of his life, the one that he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities that he engaged in, by arranging our our whole lives around the activities that he practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the Father's presence. And so what are these activities? What are the things that Jesus practiced that enabled him to be constantly at home in the Father? Well, that's the second thing, the habits, the habits of love. There's a book that came out some time ago called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And he tells the story of an an older man who had severe memory loss. He couldn't remember his name. He couldn't remember people's faces. He couldn't remember his way around. He had almost zero functional memory. But his wife every single day would would take him out on a walk and and every day they would follow this same path around their neighborhood and come back to the house. Well, one day the wife had been out and when she came home, she found that her husband was gone. Of course, she panicked and called the police and and searched their neighborhood and, and told the police, you have to look everywhere because he'll have no idea where he is. After a couple hours, she came back to the house to pick something up and found her husband in the easy chair watching TV. And what had happened was he had gone out and gone for their regular walk. He had walked the exact path of their neighborhood that he had always done, even though he had no memory of all of even doing so. But his body was so attuned to this one habit, his subconscious was so familiar with this path that he could do it with zero functional memory at all. Our habits shape us far more than we realize. Now, what are the habits of love. Think about these words from verses 3 through 5 in terms of the habits or the, the activities that promote Christlikeness in us. Paul writes Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, every commandment in the entire Bible is related to this one, which is to love the Lord your God. Jesus said the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God. And even the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is to have nothing else before God. And the old reformer Martin Luther, he said that you can't break commandments two through ten until you've first broken commandment one. When something else becomes central in our hearts and and captures our desires and our love, when we put something next to God or above God, that's when we break one of his other commandments. And so under every commandment that exists in the Bible, it's only a, a detailing out of this one commandment, love the Lord your God. Now, there's three things, three specific commands or groups of commands that we see in our passage, and the first one is about sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, which refers to any sort of sexual sin, from lust to adultery. It would certainly include pornography today. And the phrase that Paul uses, he says, all of this is improper for God's holy people, And if we think of this in terms of the way of Jesus and the life of Jesus, we see that he was the most sexually perfect person who had ever lived. You know, he wasn't married. He was never dating. You know, I mean, it would have been impossible for him to be equally yoked. You know, there wasn't somebody like him on earth. But he was perfect. He was perfectly whole in every way, including his sexuality. Now, we're going to talk about this more next week in our passage on marriage, but every single human being has some level of sexual brokenness, whether it's much or whether it's little. Every single person in the world has an amount of sexual brokenness. And yet, even still, the Bible says that sexual wholeness, not perfection, but wholeness is possible. It is possible to be restored and, and redeemed and made whole from whatever sin, whatever things are in our past, whatever pops into your mind that maybe you're ashamed of, we can become made whole in the gospel. Now, the second thing that Paul mentions is foolish talk. Any sort of speech that's unholy, it could be lying to a, a coworker about how much of the project you've gotten done. You know, it could be a kind of coarse joking or gossip with your friends, It it could be yelling obscenities in your car or uh, on your bicycle or on a golf course. And the antidote to all of this that Paul gives us is thanksgiving. He says all of these things are are not fitting for the people of God, but rather thanksgiving is. Be grateful. Be grateful at all times for what God has provided, for who he is for you. Our, Our words are the overflow of our heart. And yet, if we can capture and, and, and take control of our words, we can even change our own hearts as well. Now, the third thing is greed. And like sexual immorality, this one is mentioned twice in the passage. This is consistent with the whole of the scriptures that sexual immorality and greed are probably the two things, the two sins that are talked about more than anything else. Often you'll see one of these things really highlighted in a church. If you're in a more conservative church, chances are sexual immorality will be the one big sin, but there might be little mention of greed. If you're in a more progressive church, you might see that greed is the one big sin, but there's little talk of sexual immorality. The Bible doesn't really give us this option, it holds both things before us as as primary things to reject, ways of the world that we are to reject. And I think every one of us struggles with greed more than we even realize. And Paul says in the passage, For this you can be sure no greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Now, greed is linked to idolatry, which is putting anything next to Jesus in our hearts, and on our minds, putting anything alongside Jesus. And Paul says, greed is idolatry. And I think that makes sense because it's so easy to make money and and status and possessions so central to our identity. And as Christians, we need to be, be ruthlessly careful about our relationship to money and possessions, to power and status. We need to be careful of of constantly seeking more income or constantly moving around the country to take another promotion or constantly guarding our, our money and our finances from others. We need to be so careful about just following the ways of the world of moving up to a bigger house and a nicer car and getting our kids the perfect education. All of this, there's nothing wrong with any one thing. But Paul is saying, be careful. It is so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is so hard to have all of these things and have your identity not totally consumed in it. And then if you lose any one of these things, it's devastating. And so Paul's giving us this fatherly advice, be careful, watch out, be on guard against greed in your soul. Jesus said this in Matthew six, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Now think of these three things in terms of habits. So often we can have habits that we don't even realize that can allow sexual immorality to persist in our hearts. It might even be the the big things and the explicit things. It might just be watching TV shows or, or movies or listening to music that has enough immorality in it that it's forming your mind or deforming it more than you realize. In terms of greed, it could just be following the ways of our our country and our culture. And the antidote to greed that the Bible's always giving us is generosity. Being generous, being being open-handed with what God's given us because it's not really ours, but everything belongs to Him. Giving freely to the poor, giving freely to the church, to missions, to whatever God has put on your heart. Now, I think... For most of us, when we hear greed, it can be tough for us because a lot of us just don't make a lot of money. It feels like, you know, I don't know about you, but I often don't, I don't consider myself a rich person, you know, unless I'm comparing myself to, to a totally different country on the other side of the world, I don't think of myself as a wealthy person. But there are so many times when I catch my heart being greedy for just a little bit more. I don't know about you, but I think it was, was it last month I got my, my stimulus payment, you know? Uh, we've got three kids, so it was a monstrosity. It was awesome. I'm like, thank you, America. I'm sorry for everything I've been saying about you for the last 30 some years. I don't know where this money's coming from. Nobody knows where this money's coming from. It's a federal credit card, they're just charging it. We'll let our kids deal with it, but thank you, America. But I'll be honest, it took me weeks. I mean, I don't know, four, five, six weeks before I actually gave anything away from this income. I kept kind of trying to justify in my mind, like, well, it's not income, so I don't need to give it away. I went back and forth. And then I just sort of realized in in talking with Jesse, like, I need to just give a portion of this away. And so we, we tithed off it. And if I'll be honest, it was so hard for me. We're renovating our basement. You know, that money would have made a significant difference. My wife's like, yeah, of course we should give on I thought you had done that already. I'm like, I know, but this is like the same amount of money as like carbon wheels for my bike. It was so hard. But in, in just sort of releasing that, that little bit, there was, there was something that happened in my heart that I think just, just kind of loosened my grip on everything else. I think greed is, I'll be honest, something that I struggle with probably more than any other one of the big sins. It's just so easy for me to get wrapped up in possessions and of clinging to things. But giving is a habit. Generosity its generosity is a soil that, that greed just doesn't easily grow in. If we're being generous with our time, with our energy, with our skills and gifts, with our money, everything, it's going to be hard for greed to grow in that place now how do you how do you change a habit paul in this passage he's focused more on the negative things to avoid than on the positive things to embrace some passages are are more on the positive but he does give us three things in this text that are positive habits to cultivate he says love love your neighbors prioritize their needs walk in the way of love second be holy be holy in your relationships, in your thoughts and in your desires. And third, be thankful. Be thankful for what you have and even thankful for what you don't have rather than envious of what you don't have. Paul is begging us, cultivate a a hunger for holiness. Transform your thinking and, and your feeling, and your habits, and align yourself, as Dallas Willard said, Align yourself with the habits of Jesus. Look to his life and try to model your life on the pattern of Jesus. Certainly he would know better than anyone how to live in this world. And so study the scriptures, study the gospels, look at his words, the way he interacts with people, look at the way he relates to money and power, look at the way that he does prayer, his daily life, and seek to learn how to live as Jesus lived. Now, the last thing is an invitation. Verse eight, Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the book of Ephesians, we see three sort of states of spiritual life, three ways that you can exist in the world. The first one is spiritual death. That Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, you can be dead in your sins. The very next verse says that you can be fully alive, that Christ has raised us up with him. But in our passage, we see that there's actually a third way of living. There's total death and there's total life, but there's also this in-between that Paul calls sleepwalking. There's this kind of in-between life where we can believe all of the right things and yet not really having a relationship of, of trust and of intimacy with the Lord. Where maybe even we go to church and do all the Christian things, but we're not really giving our lives away for others. We're not laying down our lives like Jesus commanded us. Maybe we're clinging to the little pleasures of this world or the status that it can provide. And what Paul says to this is, Simply wake up. Now, I think we could hear this in two different ways. We could hear Paul shouting at us like, wake up, wake up from your slumber. When I read it though, I kind of think of it how I relate to my kids. You know, especially when they were younger, our three boys would have these nightmares. And as a parent, there are few things more frustrating and heartbreaking than when your kid's having a nightmare. And so they start just shrieking in the middle of the night in the dark and we go running in and and pick them up and try to wake them up and say, "It's it's okay, wake up, wake up. It's just a dream, wake up. I'm here, I've got you. And I feel like that's what Paul is doing for us. He knows we've often been lulled asleep by the ways of this world. And he's saying, look, wake up. You don't have to stay in darkness. You don't have to be alone in this. Wake up. Remember that you are surrounded by God's people. To live apart from God's love, to not walk in the way of Jesus. It's to choose darkness and loneliness and death. It's choosing a life of crushing burdens, of failures and disappointments, of endless problems that are never solved. But walking in the light, walking in the way of Jesus, it's life as it was meant to be lived. I've been reading through Deuteronomy the last few weeks and I've been stuck on this passage in chapter 30. Moses is giving his final commandments to the people of Israel. And he says, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult. It's not beyond your reach. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you. See, God's laws are for our good. They're not easy to follow. They're easy to understand is what Moses is saying. They're not super complicated, but they are extremely difficult to follow. It's hard to walk in the way of Jesus. And yet Moses is saying, and Paul is saying, that Christ's likeness is possible. Not spiritual perfection, but being like Christ is possible in goodness, in love, compassion, and obedience. But we have to choose it. We have to choose life, not just once, once but, but day in and day out, moment by moment. It's an active choosing of life. It's a rejection of lust and greed and anger and lying and holding on to bitterness. And it's an embrace of love, holiness, and thanksgiving. As we saw last week, it's a putting off of the old self and a putting on of the new self and new habits. Now in closing up, I think it's often that we can see holiness and Christlikeness I don't know about you, if you've experienced this, but I've often heard it as like something that's great for pastors and missionaries and theologians, but for the ordinary person, it's not really possible. I don't know if you've picked that up in churches in the past where like, if you're a member, it's like, hey, we want you to come every week. We want you to tithe, you know, serve when we need it. Otherwise, you know, we're good. But instead, the pattern of the New Testament is that every single believer is called to likeness. Spiritual formation is the work of every believer and of the whole church. Becoming like Christ is is the goal of our lives. It's the one that we will finally reach at the end of time when we become like him. Not exactly, but we will be remade in his image. And so if you're a college student, what does it look like to resist the way of the world and to choose to serve and lay down your life for others? If you're studying law or politics, what does it look like to let Christ reign in your heart above everything else and then work to create a more just and merciful and beautiful society? If you work in healthcare, what does it look like to to wash the feet of others and to prioritize the least of these? If you work in manual labor, what does it look like to let your work be done with all skill because you know that your work matters and can change the lives of others? If you're a teacher, an educator, may your light shine forth into the lives of children and families who maybe have only known darkness. So like Captain Sully, we we develop the the habits of our craft to serve others, but we also must develop the habits of faith for the glory of God so that we can use our work, we can use our entire lives in pursuit of a more Christ-like community more Christ-like society. And if that sounds exhausting to, to develop all of these habits and in addition to everything else you're doing in life, remember Paul's words, as dearly loved children walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. See, the strength and the power for a life of following Christ, it's not coming from your sacrifice. It's coming from the very sacrifice of Jesus. And as we've often said here, Jesus is still active in ministry on this earth, but now it's through his Holy Spirit and through his church. It's through each and every one of us embodying the spirit of Christ and seeking to live on earth as he did, full of his power and love. So the passage says, follow him, love him above all
0: else and walk in the way of love. Let's pray.